0: And now on the show, we're going to have some poetry. Amy Lamb is here to, to introduce uh, a wonderful poet. Amy, who are we going to hear from? Uh, Fatima Ashkar. So, so tell us about Fatima Ashkar and how you met her. So I was first introduced to her work um, because she did this amazing poem that went viral. Which just an odd thing to say that a poem went viral. Um, but it's called Pluto Shits on the Universe.
1: Today, I broke your solar system. Oops. My bad. Your graph said I was supposed to make a nice little loop around the sun. Nah. I chaos like a motherfucker. Ain't nobody can chart me. All the other planets, they think I'm annoying. They think I'm an escaped moon running free.
0: It's just such an amazing poem to think that um, for her to like embody this planet at the edge of our solar system um, and what it means to like in her her place in the world. Uh, so I was introduced to her in that way. And then um, I met her at a local Portland reading, uh, which was a very white space. And, and it was like when we met each other, we were like oasis for one another. And uh, we got to talking because she's also a fellow Kundiman Fellow, uh, which is a, a writing fellowship for Asian-American uh, fiction and poets, fiction writers and poets. And um, I just wanted to learn more about like how she became a poet and on what are common themes with her work. Um, and she's just a, a, a really great person to talk to about art. Um, well, we're going to hear your interview with Fatima and she reads us a poem too, I believe. Um, let's get into it.
1: So I want to start off by asking uh, how you found your way to poetry. I found my way to poetry through spoken word. When I was a freshman in college, I joined the spoken word poetry team at my school, and I instantly fell in love with the art form because it was just so stunningly radical to me to see all of these people on stage sharing their own stories and talking about themselves with such confidence and so there was something inside me I think that woke up and made me think that this was something I wanted to try to do and I've just been doing it ever since.
0: Was it something that you felt like you had something to say or um and and what about like poetry versus like you know filmmaking or writing prose or expressing yourself in another way?
1: Yeah, I think I did feel like I had something to say. I mean, growing up, I uh, did theater all the time and I really loved being on a stage and and I loved performing. But I think that the thing that kind of frustrated me about theater was that it was really just like one or two people's major ideas, like the director and the playwright. And you could be a good actor and you could be a good performer, but it wasn't necessarily like your voice was shaping the production. And I really, really wanted to do that. And I think when I saw Spoken Word, what what made it really beautiful for me was that you didn't really need anything. All you needed was paper and a pen and you could, anybody could do it. And so it felt like very accessible in a way that I think other art forms maybe didn't. And I just really, really wanted to do it.
0: So your first book
1: after uh, was just published. Uh, Can you tell us a little bit about what the collection is about? The collection really is about um, a kind of problematic relationship that I had with a male partner that was pretty abusive, or, both around in terms of sexual assault, but also um, in terms of like verbal stuff. And so the book kind of explores poems that are related to that experience, not just in that relationship, but other things that I've had. And so a lot of it is about body and about having your body unmade and then putting it back together and kind of um, just really details like and explores um, issues of sexual assault. Um, can you talk about some common themes that you explore in your work? In my work right now, I'm exploring a lot of things about family and about um, being a part of the, you know, Pakistani Kashmiri and Muslim diaspora and just thinking about what it means to grow up in America um, and also what it means to be an orphan and grow up in America um, without, or kind of like understanding my relationship to this country and also understanding my relationship to my countries of origin um, and and trying to figure out things about my family. Do you need poetry to sort of
0: navigate your identity or does... Or does poetry need you and your identity, if that makes sense?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I hope poetry needs me. That would be awesome. (laughs) I think that um, for me, poetry was an instrumental way in learning to talk about my own identity and learning to talk about my life experiences. Like, for example, we we just kind of briefly talked about my parents. Um, But I grew up as an orphan. So my parents died when I was really, really young, which I think made it interesting trying to think about who I was because so much of the way that I learned my identity then was not through like not always through a positive way but just through a negative way in which the media portrayed me and or portrayed people like me especially after September 11th and I think it was you know, through poetry was a way of kind of exploring some of that hurt, but also exploring some of the joys of being, um, you know, Pakistani and Kashmiri and from an immigrant background and an orphan and all of these different things that are vastly, vastly complicated. And so I think for me, I think that, you know, my identity is kind of in everything that I do. It's because it's who I am. Right. And I think that's, that's true for all of us is we see the world, we see, um, everything around us through the lens of our different intersecting identities. And so my poetry, I think, in a lot of ways is reflective of my identity because of that. Um, and I think that we're seeing this really beautiful moment in contemporary poetics in which a lot more stories of, of you know, from voices of color, um, marginalized voices are being heard or are being you know, put into the limelight, and I think that that's a really beautiful thing because for so long our voices and our stories and our narratives were excluded from mainstream poetic discourse, and I think we're kind of pushing against that. And that's not to say that we've completely succeeded, but it's to say that there's a movement in which people are very much trying. Um, and I'm really honored to be a part of that movement. And in in that way, I think you know, poetry needs all of us. Poetry needs. All of our stories and our voices, um, and kind of in an attempt to break the the kind of elite standards that poetry has been confined to for so long.
0: Yeah, so in, in that vein, like uh, what how does what is the experience of like being a person of color in a
1: literary landscape that largely might not reflect who you are? I think that it can be really frustrating um, sometimes, you know, especially when, And I'm sure that, you know, a lot of people feel this way about different things like academia or job markets or whatever. But when sometimes when you're the only person or you're, like, the one person at the table, it can feel really lonely. And then there's this incredible pressure to get everything right. And if you, like, mess something up or if you, you know like to, to be a spokesperson for everybody is just not a good position to be in. You know, you want to be the spokesperson for yourself and for your lived experience. And I think I tell my students that often is like, you know, we are the experts of our own experiences and therefore we should be in charge of authoring our image and writing, you know, the poetry that talks about our lives. Um, And I think that, you know, when I first graduated from, college I was it was really hard to think about navigating the literary landscape which is often I think so full of rejection you know um there's all these stories about people who submitted their books or their poems over and over and over and were were rejected time and time again and I think that um that was a really kind of daunting thing for me and me and my friends created a poetry collective of poets of color um Across the nation, and it was just a thing—a way of trying to go against that and trying to create a family of of poets of color who could support each other in navigating the literary ran- landscape.
0: I'm so glad you brought up like the organizations that serve writers of color because I was actually going to ask you about um, how do how does like how does one assert yourself or oneself in a space like that because it can feel really daunting and just sort of like especially as a person of color growing up in a white dominant culture it's like you know you're like your whole lived life is trying to like learn how to fit in and not just fit in but break in to systems where um historically you've been pushed out or left out so it's like to think about it in terms of like the the literature world it just seems um it's like it's it's really it's it's Uh, It's really opaque. Like, it's really hard to penetrate and get through. Um, Like, how do you sort of, uh, how do you keep going, I guess? Like, in in the face of all of that, how do you keep going?
1: Yeah, I totally agree. I think that it is really, really hard to penetrate or get through the kind of terrain, the literary terrain because I think like it's especially hard as in in the literary world because it can be so elitist already and then it's all white and it's like all of these kind of vanguards that are meant to keep you out. And I think that um, I keep going because we have to, right? Like we have to say yes to each other. We have to believe in each other and we have to kind of break these narratives because these narratives are actually really, really damaging. Like for some people they are like, Oh, does it really matter? It's one literary journal or it's this one thing. Like it's a niche market. Nobody really cares. And it's like, yeah, it's a niche market, but actually it's a microcosm of the larger world, right? Like we live in a world in which, um, people of color's lives are being erased daily and they're being erased because our society and our media likes to portray, um, people of color as though we're not real, as though we we don't deserve full narratives and full characters and full stories. And I think it's our jobs to push against that. And when when we meet resistance, you know, when they say no, it's our jobs to create the spaces in which we can say yes.
0: Oh. Fatima, that was so beautiful. I'm so glad you exist and that your art exists, like, truly. Um, so uh, there's a, this is another question I've been brewing on in terms of, like, um, uh, writers or artists who are children of immigrants. Um, did you... Is, is English your first
1: language? That's a great question. So English is my native language. It's the language that I speak the most in. And when I was growing up, like my family all spoke Urdu and Punjabi. Um, And so I understand both of those languages very well. And almost to the point where when I'm at home, I can't really differentiate when my family is speaking what language, you know, they're just, it's just, I know what they're saying. And it's just like kind of the language of home. But I always answered back in English, which I think is like a thing that happens with some immigrant families is like you just The newer generation, like, will answer in English or will answer in the kind of um, the the language of the place that they're surrounded by. And so, I actually don't really speak Urdu and I'm um, or Punjabi, and I'm trying to learn it right now. Um, And then also, my family, you know, we're Muslim, and I could read, like, I learned how to read Arabic very, very young, and I learned how to read Arabic so that I could read the Quran, and I would read it over and over and not necessarily understand the meaning behind it. Um, but it was like a practice of, I knew how to read English. I knew how to read Arabic. Um, and I, you know, had this link, lang- these two other languages around me all the time, but I wasn't necessarily speaking them.
0: So this is like a really kind of selfish question from, from my, for my part. But um, like as a person where like, I, d- I mean, my, my first language isn't English, but like now my entire life is English. Right. And, like, and I do the same thing that you do, where when I'm with my family, I speak like this broken um, Cantonese Mandarin thing. Um, and, and, and it's even more complicated because my parents are, even though we're ethnically Chinese, they're from Vietnam. And so um, but yet they've completely um, like fluffed off Vietnamese uh, because they don't want that to be part of their identity so like language plays such a big role in in you know who we are and how we navigate who we are and it, this is a question that i've been thinking about for myself as as a writer who writes in english um do you do you often think about like what it like i i, I think i'm asking writers because i want them to tell me the answer but <laughs> do you often think about um sort of what it means to Write in English, if that makes sense?
1: Yes, I think about it all the time. And I think about, you know, when, when we're talking about decolonizing our our minds, then what does it mean to be writing, a writer who's writing in English, right? What does it mean to be a writer who's writing in English who's against systems of colonization, who's against systems of racism, of imperialism, of, of oppression in, in those systematic ways? And um, I think that's like a huge reason why I'm learning to, why I'm trying to teach myself how to. Um, speak Urdu and it's not necessarily to just be able to um, write in Urdu but it's to be able to communicate with um, my people you know in some ways and to to be able to kind of preserve that part of of myself and my identity rather than just letting it be assimilated away and something I've noticed in my own writing over the past year is I've been actively, introducing Urdu words into my um, poems, so like I'll write a poem and a lot of the words will be in Urdu or in Punjabi and they won't be they won't be translated like I'm not in, I'm not going to translate them at the end they're just going to kind of exist in the in the on the page Um, and it's kind of up to the reader to either just read them and infer what they mean or to look them up you know um and i think in a way that's kind of to me like a way of pushing against that you know colonization or or, or kind of the overwhelming prevalence of english across the world is just to be like you know what i i'm going to honor my language as the best i can and i hope that in my life i will continue to honor the language the languages of the places that I come from and the people who, you know, who have raised me or the people who who were my ancestors or who kind of like laid the framework. Um, and I think especially as an orphan, that's really, really important to me when I think about having kids or having um, a family or, you know, continuing a, a life in which writing and words are so important to me. I, I have to ask myself the question, like, which, you know, words and which, you um, which language, and and how can I make sure that I'm putting priority on the one on the ones that um, have the most danger of being lost?
0: Ah, oh, so beautifully
1: put. <laughs> um, so I
0: guess this is actually
1: a really great time for you to read uh, a piece of yours. So I'm gonna read a piece that I think kind of reflects some of the joy of being in immig- from an immigrant family and a joy of being um, in my particular family. Um, and it's about Old Country Buffet. Old Country Buffet was where my family went on the days we saved enough money. Everybody was in a good mood, even Mamu. Our uncle, who never smiled or took off his coat and dyed his hair black every two weeks so we couldn't tell how old he was, though his love for Jurassic Park, Charlie Chaplin, and the sound of music convinced us he might be hatched from an egg. We marched single file towards the gigantic red lettering across the grueling gravel parking lot to announce our arrival. We, children, carrying our rectangle backpacks brimming with homework calculators and Lisa Frank trapper keepers for we knew this was a day without escape spread out across all the booths possible while our family ate and ate and ate and snuck food into the Tupperware, they smuggled into the restaurants and no matter how we begged and whined or the waitress yelled or threatened to charge us more money, we weren't leaving until my greedy ass family had their fill. Oh, old country, the only place we could get dessert and eat as much of it as we wanted before our actual meal. The only place we didn't have to eat all the meat on our plates or else we were accused of being wasteful, told our husbands would have as many pimples as rice we left behind. Here, our family reveled in the American way of waste. Manifest destiny our way through the mac and cheese, casseroles and green beans, mythical foods we had only heard about from the TV shows where the American children rolled their eyes in disgust. Here we learned how to say, I too have had meatloaf and hate it, evidence we could bring back to the lunchroom as we guessed what the other kids ate and they scoffed at our biryani. Here the adults told us if we didn't like the cake, we could eat the ice cream or jello or strawberry shortcake, we could get a whole plate just to try a bite and turn up our noses and that was fine. Here we loosened the drawstrings on our chavar kameez and gained 10 pounds. Here we arrived at the beginning of lunch hour and stayed until dinner approached, until they made us leave. Here we learned how to be American and say, today we got the money. And we're here to stay.